Hello and welcome back to Sabbath School from Home. We're really excited to have you join us again for a discussion and we're continuing on our um, meander through the book of Genesis. And the theme for this episode is the Tower of Babel. I'm Lachlan and I'm really interested to see what we might find in this story. And I'm Luke and I'm looking forward to uh, stringing out nine verses for 55 minutes. Yeah, exactly. Well, we're going to have to work hard at it. This particular episode, neither Cam nor Ken can join us for the recording session. But there's a certain sense of balance being restored here because last episode, it was only Ken and Cam who who were able to join that recording. And I'm going to take this opportunity to make a plug. If you have not listened to the previous episode, then after listening to this one, I do encourage you to go back and, and catch up on it because Cameron made a very interesting and um, slightly provocative, I think, um, realization um, about the the theme of, of repentance, um, in a sense, emerging in these earlier parts of, of the Bible. So that was an episode last week about the flood and not that long ago we had an episode about Cain and, and here we are again looking at a story which has people doing something God doesn't want and God having to step in and deal with it. This is the Tower of Babel and I think that there are a number of similarities here that we, that we may be picking up. Why don't we start by just reading these nine verses as you pointed out Luke um, and there's probably a, a, so few of them that we can read them and can, can contain our interruptions and commentary until after we've read the verses. <laughs> That'll be a first. Probably <laughs> easier with just the two of us, although. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I, I'm, <laughs> we'll I'm, have... I'm looking at the first verse and I'm already feeling, feeling the challenge. I, I have comments immediately. But um, maybe you read the first five and I'll take the last four. Yeah, okay. At one time, all the people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. As the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia and settled there. They began saying to each other, let's make bricks and harden them with fire. In this region, bricks were used instead of stone and tar was used for mortar. They said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. But the Lord came down to look at the city and the tower the people were building. And the Lord said, Behold, they are only one they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And then it goes <laughs> into the genealogy of Shem. And my immediate initial thought was to go and look back at Genesis 10. And of course, Genesis 10 is the end of the Noah story. And the end of Genesis ah, of 10, verse 32, reads like this um, in, the, in the ESV, which is what I'm looking at. And there's an interesting difference in 11 between the ESV and, and whatever you were just reading mm. um, that we could, we could probably uh, hook our claws into a bit. But 32 of chapter 10 says, 
These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogy. So it's the genealogy of Noah that we're talking about. In their nations, mm. and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Right? Mm. And then the last verse of the Babylon story, chapter 11, is talking about, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Which strongly implies yeah. we're talking about the same people here. And then verse 10 of chapter 11, it goes back into the generations of Shem. Yes, who's one of the sons of Noah. Noah. So it seems odd at first thought to have this sort of Tower of Babel little vignette sandwiched in the middle of Noah's family genealogy. Uh, But it makes a little more sense if you consider that the Tower of Babel story is talking about the descendants of Noah. And and there's there's a mirror here to the Cain and Abel story. You remember the Cain and Abel story has this little side detour where it talks about what Cain and his branch of the family did. And then it goes back to the important genealogy of Noah, which is their third son, Seth. And from Mm, them, mm. you know, Abraham and and, and so on and so forth are descended. Right. So it it does this little side detour. And this is, this is so perfect. I feel like this almost can't be a coincidence. The side story. I looked this up just as we were starting the side story of Cain building a city and this little this little yeah. detour and if you read out if you listen to our podcast two weeks ago you know what i'm talking about here is from verse 17 of chapter 4 to verse 26 it is nine verses oh. long <laughs> and then wow. we come to genesis 11 and this little side detour about some of the descendants of noah who did something mm. not according to the lord's will is nine verses long and then back into genius so it's an exact mirror of the structure of chapter 4 I am fascinated by that because we tend to love the story of the Tower of Babel much more than the story of um, Cain's city and and his great grandson, his vengeful great great grandson. Yeah, that's that's right. Was it Lamech? Lamech, yes. Yeah, and there was yeah we because we tell the the Tower of Babel features in children's stories. It, it, the Tower of Babel is a is a narrative that has it has all of the hallmarks of a good um, folk tale, uh, fairy tale, myth, and and I'm I'm not wanting to be disparaging of the story by invoking those terms. We've already on this podcast discussed at length the the utility of the of the term myth. Yes, and and for anyone who's at all unclear, when we use the word myth in this context of this podcast, at any point, it is a compliment. It's not yes. an insult. It's not pejorative. We like myths. What I mean by that is that the Tower of Babel is a story that is memorable. Yes. It's 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 tellable quickly. It has a point. Um, and I'm not sure that we always get all the details of the point. I'm really fascinated. Um, the the Sabbath school lesson for this week actually brings out a couple of interesting details. That picking up on the wording, so. Um, they say, in verse 3, they say to each other, let's make, mm. which is exactly reminiscent of the wording that, that God uses in the creation narrative at the start of Genesis. Um, let us make man in our image. Mm. Right? Um, so there's, there's a phrasing there that's the same. In verse 4, they, why do they want to build a city that is, with a tower that reaches into the sky? Well, as a kid, I'd always been told it was just to escape the flood, because, of course, this story comes on the heels of the story of the flood. But in verse 4, they want to 
make a name for themselves. And back in the creation narrative, it was God who named things and then gave Adam the role of naming the creatures. Here, this is the first time that people are saying, we want to name ourselves. We want to make our own name. And the lesson brings out, the the wording there in verse 3 and 4 is told in such a way that makes you realize that these people are trying to be God. They're trying to take the place of God. So, yeah, there there is some really cool little details, um, complete with really fun anthropomorphization of God. The Lord came down to look at the city <laughs> as if somehow he needs to. And and if he did need to, then it's an absolute slam at their, their claim they're going to make the biggest tower in the world, and it's not even big enough for God to see from heaven. He has to come down. <laughs> to, well, and I think to... <laughs> it is an intentional narrative device to emphasize the power mm. of God relative to the, the efforts of yeah. the children of, of man. As they're described. Yeah, yeah. It's something that always never really sat very well with me in 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 the story of the Tower of Babel, and it, it actually sits a bit better in light of what you were just sort of saying about the because it's it, to to my reading of it is it's not really stated they're trying to to be God, right? And I don't personally mm. see anything inherently evil in the building of a tower, but that thing about the making a name for ourselves um, is a bit more palatable. But but for me, I. That, that thing about, well, God made man in his own image, and to me, I strongly associate that idea with the act of creating, being a creator in our own rights, being a, a, a generative of things, if you like, the opposite of being a consumer, um, you know, and if we want to detour into that, I, I find more and more, um, and this is certainly from a position of someone who's been sucked into being a consumer, I find more and more that consumerism is deleterious to human well-being, spiritual well-being, mm. right? Whereas mm. creativity and, and, and generation is, is yes. a positive thing. So why is it that these children of men who were made in the image of God, doing as God did and making things, why is yeah. that bad? And what they're describing as making as well is, well, there's, uh, I'll, I'll put my, my little tattered architecture student hat on, for a second, this is this is some fairly sophisticated stuff. The difference mm. between mud bricks that you can make a single-story hovel out of and mud bricks that you can make a ziggurat out of, which is the <laughs> tower of the of the Assyrian and Babylonian, you know those those Mesopotamian civil not Mesopotamian, mm. is it Mesopotamia? What's the river? The 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 you, uh, Euphrates, the Euphrates, Euphrates Valley yeah. civilizations. Right, the difference is described accurately in this chapter that you have to bake the bricks. Only then do yeah. they have the material properties, the t- the, yes, the, yes. the compressive strength, and and the rigidity <laughs> to build multi-story buildings. Otherwise, you're stuck with mud huts, right? Yeah, if, if okay. they're unbaked bricks, if they're if they're just sun-dried, yeah. you know, which is the, mm. the the more simple way of doing it. Um, and a distinction also from perhaps the Egyptians. Who, and and, and the uh, the Phoenician uh, civilizations who built in stone, right? right? It's actually contrasted right here. So so these people over on the eastern side of of who you know the author's world, mm. you know, didn't just build with stone. They had brick for stone, 
and bitumen for yes. water. And and they, they had better brick than anyone else. They were technologically advanced. And that's why they could build the tower. I've certainly heard that heard the t- story of the Tower of Babel invoked as an anti-technology well, um, narrative. Yes, and it does kind of... It, you can certainly read it that way. And that's the bit of it that I have trouble with because... And, but particularly that thing about, look, they're being creative and innovative and they are in God's image. Yeah, not only are they being creative and innovative, which I agree are, um, you know, in our society in particular, where it is so easy to consume other people's creativity. Um, I think it's so important for us to to nurture and find outlets to to practice and develop our own creative abilities to produce something whether it's a flower arrangement or a poem or a photo you know all sorts of different things but not only are they being creative they're being united um organized and yeah they are they look god seems to have an issue with this in verse six look he said the people are united Mm. what could possibly be wrong with that surely if you de-unite people that's the first step of war. <laughs> and then that bit about nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. We, we've got to, we've yeah. got to hinder their progress. Ah, that is a connection I've never seen before. That is very, very reminiscent of the wording that God uses in chapter 3 of Genesis. Because he says, now they may eat from the tree of life and live forever. We You're can't right. have this. We're going to have to kick them out of the garden. As if somehow God has some issue with the people he's created now being like him. He created them in his image. And then in verse in verse 22 of chapter 3 of Genesis, Then the Lord God said, See, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might reach out his hand and also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden. It's a challenging thought that, as it's written, the reason that they were sent forth was not because they had done, had disobeyed God, but because the consequences of them having disobeyed God and then eating mm. from the tree of life were, were too undesirable to, to be allowed. And it's sort of mm. the same thing with the Tower of Babel. It doesn't seem like there's anything inherently wrong in the building of the tower. It is the implications of what yeah. it means later on down the line that is unacceptable. Um, yeah. It's interesting that this comes immediately after the story of Noah, where God has just intervened directly in a massive way mm-hmm. um, because he is, he is distraught at human sin. Um, and then this is, I don't know how many generations down the line, but you know, the parallels with cancer is can't be, too far from Noah, mm. um, because that story about all the nations being descended from Noah is is mirrored at the end of of the story of the Tower of Babel. They spread out and became all the nations. Yeah. Um, so the same thing that happens at the end of chapter ten happens in the middle of chapter eleven. Mm. But it's God directly intervening again in human affairs to prevent some tragedy. We we will assume tragedy. Yeah. So uh, let me just pick up on this. I already I already referred to a couple of elements of the wording that, to me, make it pretty clear to the extent that these people are doing something wrong. It is glorifying themselves at the expense of God, right? They are trying to be God. So I don't think that it is fair 
to read this story as a warning or a diatribe against technological development or creative output. Um, I don't believe that it is the technology of the bricks or the architectural design of the tower that, that God had issues with. Not only do they want to make themselves famous or make a name for themselves, but they want to, it, it is implied in verse 2, as the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia and settled there. They settled. And then they try and build a city, and then they try and build a tower, and they say explicitly in verse 4, this will make us famous, and will keep us from being scattered all over the world. But read again the last verse of chapter 10, that that is the lead into this story. Yes, it's almost as though chapter 10's final verse happens after the story of the Tower of Babel. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So spreading abroad on the earth has to be remembered, in, has to be read in the light of the blessing and instruction at the end of the creation narrative in chapter 1 and chapter mm. 2, where God blesses all of his creation and, and instructs them to multiply and fill the earth. Now, that's an interesting one, that the idea is that if they build the Tower of Babel, they're all going to stay in this one place. And we actually need yeah. them to spread out. So I think that what is being implied here in this part of the story is that they, in this regard as well, they are expressly disobeying God's instruction mm. and God's desire. God's desire is for them. And, and this is such a hard thing for me personally to wrap my head around. When we live in a world where we have to legislatively protect wilderness areas. Mm. Right, the the idea that is implied here in the first chapters of Genesis, in fact, the entire book of Genesis, the idea that it is God's expressed desire and really important priority that humans spread and multiply and fill all of the wild places of the earth, yeah. I find I find really difficult. But that's not really fair to critique Genesis on that because. In reality, it's only perhaps the last 150 years of human society where it's even made sense to worry about the idea mm. of the earth being full. Yes, and, <laughs> yes I mean, it, a very different context. For most of human history, there was absolutely mm. no question of needing to worry about nature. And nature was vastly more powerful than any human yeah. entity organization. Um but I, the other thing that I think is interesting to read this story of is in the geopolitical context of, of the, the people of Israel. Because uh, we've okay. talked about this before, um, that they were a, 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 a herds people, you know, mm. nation, surrounded by powerful agrarian empires. Yes. Um, and this is talking about one of those agrarian empires. And I know that we've, I think we've, we've discussed, we've touched on recently sort of... Um, the the elements of the the creation narrative that are countering the the mythologies and the the creation narratives of these powerful surrounding nations you know it's it's genesis mm. is almost a rebuke of the you know the yeah. the assyrian creation stories um and and a, and an intentional counterpoint the god is much more powerful and much more noble in character. Yes, um, yes. And and uniquely invested in the well-being of humanity as opposed to humanity being a tool or a nuisance or mm. anything else like that. 
Um, mm. And so this also is a statement about the power of God over Israelites powerful neighbors which mm-hmm. is which is a common theme is that yes these neighbors who occasionally invade and enslave us um and I say occasionally just more or less constantly um are more powerful than us but God is more powerful than them and that is also yes. very clear in this story it's another story of God you know and and you can see it as being something that is in there to reassure the Israelites who are who are hearing this tale or reading this or having this tale read to them or reading this tale this mm. story of you know the Assyrians or the Hittites or the Babylonians or the Medes yeah. and Persians or whoever it might be at whatever point in their history the story of that civilization and that civilization is very clearly identified by the bricks and the mortar mm. uh, because the Greeks and the Phoenicians and the Egyptians use bricks right. and mortar yeah, yeah, and it is it is a in a story that is told so sparsely. Um, you know, we started by commenting that it's only nine verses, and you sort of feel like it should be more than that because it's a story that, in our telling of Genesis, has more weight. Um, you know, the flood story was three chapters, mm. and, and and if you go into an Adventist sort of children's telling of the Bible, immediately yeah. following the flood story is the Tower of Babel. And it gets about yes. as much airtime as the flood yeah. story. Yeah, it does. But really, in here in Genesis, it's not getting anywhere near as much airtime. And so, in that light, it is it is really remarkable that the details of fire-hardened bricks instead of stone uh, is given. And I think that it it makes I think it has to be pointing at what you just said, the geopolitical context. Um, you know, as as we've been looking at it, I. I think we do need to really sharpen our focus. If the story is told sparsely, it could be that it's not trying to make too many different points. Mm. It could be that it's trying to make one point and make that particularly clearly. And I am struck by comparing verse 4 with verse 9. So in the second half of verse 4, they, they want to build themselves a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. Jump down to verse 9. God confuses the language in this way he scattered them all over the world now scattered all over the world is a phrase that is directly repeated yes. there and it's as as we've commented it's connected to the instruction of and creation that, tri- that triggers an interesting thought as well because at, at, as you said earlier god is anthropomorphized in this story mm. he comes down he talks yeah. to himself yeah yeah essentially yeah <laughs> uh, that's kind of implied and that's a very human thing to do yeah it's reminiscent of the creation narrative though as well in genesis 1 2 and 3 god speaks to himself a lot but what if we can look at this story as actually the telling of a self-fulfilling prophecy mm. so it was the building of the tower that caused the strife between the people uh-huh. as they fought for power and influence over this this new this this incredible city this this symbol this name for themselves and that was what led to the dispersing and god's role uh. is very real in it but anthropomorphized here for emphasis and it's 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 we've talked about this in other parts of the bible as well um, huh. which is where you know uh, we've we've talked about it in the context of hardening pharaoh's heart which is how mm. much did god harden pharaoh's heart and how much are we saying that god how much how much did pharaoh do himself yeah. Um, but it's according to God's plan because God knew Pharaoh and knew that Pharaoh would react this way. So it's saying God scattered the people 
across the earth from the Tower of Babel because God knew that yeah. in their building of the Tower of Babel, they would fall into infighting among themselves. Yeah. Well, uh, that I think that that's a really good idea, and I'm going to jump to the New Testament with it. But just before I do, there is something curious here because the story of Cain featured a city. Mm. Um, and there there seems to be something about cities. The the author of Genesis really isn't he's, into he's them. Not, he's not a city, <laughs> a city. He's not city and, folk. He's definitely a country country boy. Yeah, could it be that that realization that you have just described, cities, especially in the ancient world, mean power? And power means competition. Um, it means it means the disagreements, jealousies. You know when yeah, jealousies. Um, and and the Wars. story here of the of the Tower of Babel could be actually saying a profound kind of picture of what power does to communities mm. um in the way that it it or, or, it, or it destabilizes perhaps the pursuit of power even better that's a better way to say it yeah the pursuit of power leads to the sorts of jealousies and fractures in communities that end up with people speaking different and languages I, I from each other it is a very consistent it's very consistent with hebrew culture in that all all of their enemies were, mm. were city builders, and and yes. then Israel. You know, if you if you get onto the sort of the um, prophets and kings, Israel, you know, sort of strayed much more frequently. Not exclusively; they definitely strayed earlier, but they strayed much more frequently and with much more dire consequences when they themselves became city builders. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and then and yet there are little exceptions. So. There's the entire story of Nehemiah rebuilding a city wall. And in that, it seems that the point of the story as recorded in the book of Nehemiah is that God is on the side of the city builders. Mm. Well, yeah, it's a very good point. And then, of course, later on in the Bible, and I don't know uh, some of the books of the Old Testament well enough to know if this shows up there or it's just the New Testament. But I mean, there's a lot about the holy city, and the city, the there city is. suddenly becomes an, an icon of yeah. Of in God's fact, grace and, and mercy. So much so, I think you might be right that it's more predominantly a New Testament picture. It's so much so that you almost have the if you if you take the broadest possible brushstrokes from Genesis to Revelation. You have God's involvement with humanity being to transform it from a garden to a city. Um, oh, that's an interesting the, concept. Uh, the, yeah, true. The city, the, the, the New Jerusalem, has 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 rivers and trees. <laughs> so it's it's uh, let's call it a a, it's a, nice, it's, it's, a garden yeah, city. It's, uh, <laughs> it's it's a utopian city. That's right. It's, it's the Canberra right. of the. It's the heavenly Canberra, um, not not perhaps the heavenly. Oh well, being very, I think you're being very else. nice to Canberra, there. but all right. <laughs> Canberra is a city with many trees. I wanted to jump across the New Testament for a different reason. I wanted to pick up on a story that we know well from Acts chapter two. Oh, all right. So, um, yeah, I'm going to jump in. Well, this is the story of the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost. I, I think I'll pick it up at Acts chapter two, verse five. Now, there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem, 
and at this sound the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us, in our own native language? And then I won't read verse 9. Oh, no, you, you've, you've got to read 9 and 10. Okay. And, and 11. How... <laughs> so, cause, no, because I... these specifics are, are, are really significant. I'll read them for you. All right. I'll, I'll go for it. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So let's yeah. just, anybody who, who doesn't nerd out about ancient geography as much as me, Parthia is Central Asia like like um uh west of east of the caspian sea so what would now be the the stands kyrgyzstan and kazakhstan it's that far away um and 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 medes is uh, that they're you know from from media that's the the persians and the the medes and that's um that's that's a bit south and west of there but that's still central asia that's sort of northern iran um Elamites, I'm not sure about Mesopotamia. Of course, is is um, is to the to the um, east of of Israel, um, and and the eastern Mediterranean in the, the the desert and and across that direction. Judea is is fairly close by. Cappadocia is in modern day Turkey, as is Pontus, um, mm. and Asia. Well, Turkey uh, for a long time, Turkey was Asia in in the European mindset. Um, Phrygia is Greece. Um, Egypt, of course, is, is Egypt. Libya is, is modern-day Libya. Cyrene is in modern-day Libya. And then you've got Rome. Then you've got Cretans, which is the island of Crete, um, and Arabians, <laughs> which is, of course, quite a long way south, um, yeah. and the Arabian Peninsula. But you know, you've also got North Africa and the Ethiopian kingdoms down there as well. So this is it's literally north, south, east, and west, at, to, out to a considerable distance. It's effectively making the the same the same bringing to mind the same picture as genesis 11 verse 9 scattered all over the world yes. and it's it's almost it's just like that sort of list um those specific locations it's just about probably something not not far off their knowledge of the known world so they're literally mm. saying from everywhere yeah yeah now here's the thought that i so there's a number of interesting comments that we could make here this acts chapter 2 is an Un, an anti-Babel story. It's mm. it's a reunifying despite language differences through a miraculous rendition, uh, translation uh, sort of process. Clearly, this story of Acts 2, the story of Pentecost, involves the undoing of, even if only temporarily, the curse of Babel. And and I what I'm wanting to just... I, I, it makes me wonder... Could it be that a lot of what the people in Genesis 11 were trying to do were good things? Uh, technology, creativity, unity, um, you know, these are good things, but that somehow in God's eyes they weren't yet ready for it. And I'm wondering, because you also then come to the... Um, you know the the tree of life the 
Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 are, are kicked out of Eden because the God says, hey, what if they come and they can, what if they eat of the tree of life and live forever? But then you get to John in the New Testament, the Gospel of John, Jesus is the bread of life. All who eat will never have hunger again. Um, and Jesus seems to be invoking an undoing of the Genesis 3 expulsion from the garden just as acts 2 seems to be undoing what happens in babel and i just wonder could it be could it be that what is wrong here in genesis is not so much the actions that you know eve so i want to be clear here eve disobeyed god's instruction and that is always wrong but the knowing good and evil being like god well god created humans in his image clearly there's an intention for humans to be like god so, so the reason given for God having to re- eject them from the garden is that they have somehow become like him in, a, in some mysterious way. That seems to be a weird reason to give, but could it just simply be they were moving faster than, than they were ready for? Like the, the, the maturity wasn't there yet. It, it's a, not a well-formed idea in my mind. The, the, it's a bit the time, nebulous. The time was not right. Yeah, and that somehow there's there's something wrong here in Genesis 11. Unity is a good thing, um, but the unity they were using their unity to reject God's desire for them to spread, mm. and so God makes them spread. But then, when you get to Acts in the New Testament and after Jesus, Jesus has asked for His message to be proclaimed to all of the world. So this is now. In Genesis 11, it was the people spreading to all of the world. In New New Testament, it's the gospel of Jesus spreading to all of the world. It's now not a population movement. It's an idea movement. Mm. And in order to achieve that goal in Acts, the the curse of Babel is undone. There's a, there's a beautiful symbolic kind of closing of that circle, but I can't quite put my finger on how to express it properly. Well, I'm not. I'm not sure I'd, I'd be able to necessarily help you there because I, yeah, I, I, I see what you're, you're getting at, but I can't think of a better way to put it. I, you just reminded me, of course, that, that insight that we had, on the story of Cain, which was, that that because it doesn't say that there's anything wrong with him building a city, in Cain. Hmm. Although when you read into the details of it, it doesn't sound like it was a nice city, to live in doesn't sound like these people mm. were, were being very good to each other. And then you look at what Cain was commanded to do, and the problem with him building a city wasn't that there's anything inherently wrong with cities. It's just that he was told to wander. He was not told to uh-huh. settle down. And that's, yeah. that's the fundamental issue. And, and so exactly as you're saying, it could be the same with the Tower of Babel. The issue was not that they were building that there's anything wrong with building a city or building a tower. It's just, it's not what people at that time were supposed to be doing. They were supposed to be mm. spreading. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's that, it's that sort of thing where you have, you know, it, it's not inherent. It, it's the time and the place and the circumstances. Mm. And it's about mm. following God's will. It's not anything inherent in the activities themselves, which speaks to, you know, your sort of thing that I don't think it should be read as any sort of anti technological or anti-creation um type of of story but i think that the the full circle the coming full circle is really interesting and of course the the events of acts 2 would not be possible if the events of genesis 11 had not taken place because there Mm -hmm. would have been no 
people from across the world speaking different languages. That's yeah. the narrative sort of arc. Yeah. Look, there's a number of other things we could have done. Uh, I'm looking at the time and we, we don't really have time for them. One that interests me is just as the creation account in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 gives rise to controversy frequently because of data, scientific observation, uh, providing some resonance to this picture of, of evolutionary development of biological life. Um, there is a almost perfect parallel because languages evolve and they evolve in a very similar way. If you have people separated, uh, so um, biologically, if you have populations separated like birds of paradise in the different valleys in Papua New Guinea, and they don't travel across the high altitude mountain ranges, that geographic separation leads to differentiation and eventually speciation. Mm -hmm. And so you, you physiologically, you diverge a bit if you're no longer um, kind of interbreeding and, and the, connected. The Wallace line is a fascinating, a fascinating thing to, to, to learn about if anybody wants to go and look that up. Right. It's a very good example of that, the deep trench that runs through Indonesia. And one side of it right. is entirely Asian species, plants and animals, and the other side of it is Australasian. So you've got an island right. here that's got kangaroos on it, and then you've got an island that's only a few kilometers away that, that uh, well, it probably doesn't have tigers on it, but it could. Yeah. Yeah, well, the what is true in that sense of um, physiology and, and botany and zoology is actually par very closely paralleled by language. You know, the regional dialects if you, of every valley in the UK yeah, has a different dialect yeah. because people didn't travel. They're exactly right. So there is a bizarreness here about there's just a sort of an overlap. It, it doesn't help anyone with anything. It really only throws more cans of worms into the mix. But just as there is a little bit of tension between people who want to observe scientific data to suggest evolutionary mechanisms for for biological systems and then read Genesis 1 as saying, no, no, it was just God's instruction that created it. Um, the same problem is here in Genesis 11, because in Genesis 11, it says the languages arose because God just caused them to be by, by speaking effectively. Um, uh, whereas, whereas the, the evidence on the ground suggests or is consistent with a, a a sort of an evolutionary development of language the the places that are geographically closest together and have the most cultural mixing have the most similar sorts of languages and so on and so on um yeah nothing terribly profound there other than just realizing that some of these things remind us that our view of the world and our window into trying to understand the world is not really the same as the cultures that first experienced these narratives in Genesis. Mm. The only other detail that I wanted to point out and have been forgetting to these last 42 minutes is the, is the compass direction east. Ah. So verse 2 here, as the people migrated to the well, east. I'm very glad you brought this up because this is the difference in translation that I wanted to point out. But go ahead with your thought first. Okay. Well, I just wanted to point out that it's my recollection Adam and Eve 
we've talked about them in this episode. We've talked about them being kicked out of the Garden of Eden. That's that's to the east. And east features in the story of Cain as well, from memory. And so I wonder if that is also somehow a kind of code that we're meant to pick up as as people who have been following through this narrative for now 11 chapters. East means wrong. It's, it's associated with going... with. with with deviating from God's plan. So right at the very start of this story, before we hear about them building bricks or cities or towers, we're already primed to know they're not the goodies in this story. Right. Well, yes, and that could be, again, that sort of cultural context of the writing of this, or at least at some point, was that, you know, the bad guys, the guys that enslaved us and burnt down all our cities, they're over in the East. But just to, <laughs> yeah. just to completely mess with you then, the English Standard Version, chapter 2, says this, And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the uh. land of Shinar and settled there. <laughs> okay. Um, so that, that uh, completely ruins that all right, concept. Well, <laughs> they're either they're coming or they're going, but east is involved. <laughs> and it just When you read it, I thought, oh, that's, a, that's actually a big change in the narrative. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not sh- I'm not sure why it's different in the two different versions. Um, there's no footnote to sort of say this is a this is a, a questionable translation or uncertain or. Yeah, the one that I was reading, um, which says to the east, was the New Living Translation, which is certainly a translation more intent on thought and and interpretive translation rather than strict, um, you know, word for word literal translation. Uh, so I think I will defer on this one, and I'll say that probably it's the weight of evidence. Uh, well, I just looked up the new King James Version. and You've got to go to King James for the for the true correct version of the Bible. He said facetiously. Um, and that one also says, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east. So that, that seems to be the more standard um, translation of it. Well, that really is quite fascinating. Mm. Um yeah, I don't. That brings us really to where we should end, just on time grounds. But I, I'm actually delighted and slightly surprised, although I should stop being surprised, um, that so much interesting discussion has been able to take place around a story that we know well, but actually really doesn't have much substance here in the Book of Genesis. Mm. It's only nine verses long, yes. um, and and I think again, it, for me, much like the story of Cain. Uh, even though this one gets a lot more prominence, there's a lot of interesting detail there that we don't focus on typically as, as mm. part of a Bible study. Um, although I do have to give props to the to the Seventh Day Adventist Sabbath School lesson for for having some interesting insights into into the language of some of the verses. Yeah, I I think there's a a little tricky because I, I agree with you that you know it's only nine verses and we probably talk about it too much. In fact. Hmm. But at the same time, I think we're not talking about the right parts of it. We're not looking, we're, we're not accessing some of the really interesting bits. And I was, I was so excited to read it today and see the similarity with that part of the story of those nine verses at the end of the story of Cain. Hmm. And, and I don't think it's a coincidence that you, it's almost the exact same narrative. If you take the detail out, it's people build this, yep. it's people, dis- people, um, do not act according to the will of God, or they don't follow the instructions that we know God has given. They build a mm. city, it goes bad. <laughs> yeah. And and yeah. then we go back to the story of the narrative of, of of things that did happen according to what God wanted. 
Yes, yes. Well, the rest of this chapter, we're not reading it now. The rest of this chapter is really the the uh, more of these genealogies. The, the rest of the chapter and is then, a way to get to the start of the story of Abraham. Exactly. And the story of Abraham is where we will be um, turning to in our next episode. So let's leave this one here. I, I think we've, um, we don't have a, a, a robust exciting conclusion so listeners if you if you can distill all of our um, ramblings into into something that is useful and concise please email it to sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com and we'll be able to share it with everyone when we next record you can also email us if you've got any comments that that you think might add to the conversation or if you think that we've um, deviated too far from the correct and true path you can share this podcast with your friends, with your family, and with your enemies, even if they don't speak the same language as you. We'll look forward to you joining us next episode.